The Mark Stein Show. And now, here's Mark. Tough times, tough times. My old comrade Boris Johnson has survived another night in the intensive care unit. The singer-songwriter John Prine did not. Boris has beaten the odds all his life. No one, aside from our mutual friend Dan Colson, thought for a minute that he was a plausible candidate for editor of The Spectator. Few people thought he could win an election as mayor for a thoroughly Labour city like London. And until the failures of Theresa May, the idea that a Tory parliamentary caucus that despised him would vote for him as leader was the longest of long shots. His odds at St Thomas's Hospital, according to a brand new report from the UK on 2,249 COVID-19 patients, um, are not as uh, long, but still sobering. If, like Boris, you're between 50 and 69, your chances of leaving the ICU alive are about 1 in 2, 54-46. If, like John Prine, you're 73, your odds are about 1 in 3. The intensive care unit is not a good place to wind up. This virus extended its bony finger from Wuhan to touch John Prine in Nashville because of the lies of Beijing and their regurgitation by the disgraceful WHO. Let's quarantine China, not your Auntie Mabel. April 8th, 2020. From my house arrest to yours. It's your Stein Show Corona Copia. Everybody was kung flu fighting. Those stats climbed fast as lightning. In fact, it was a little bit frightening. Chai comes of expert timing. There were funky Chinamen from funky Wuhan town. They were chopping bats up. They were chowing them down. It's an ancient Chinese dish And everybody says delish Chairman Z will book your flight You'll be in Milan tonight And everybody starts Kung Flu fighting Okay, that's enough of that We'll do the full song maybe Friday Where do we stand? Over one and a half million confirmed cases worldwide, up from one and a third just yesterday. That number's meaningless because of the Chinese lies and uh, the other inconsistencies in testing. At a time like this, the world cries out for leadership. Leadership comes in many forms. Sometimes it comes as a battle-scarred pony soldier with self-raising leg hair who rusts his switchblade in a rain barrel so he can lay down the law to Deng Xiaoping. Step forward, Joe Biden. The case where we cannot let this, we've never allowed any crisis from the Civil War straight through to the pandemic of 17, all the way around 16. We have never, never let our democracy take second fiddle. We, they, we can both have a democracy and elections and at the same time correct the public health. 
Uh-huh. You know it makes sense. No wonder Bernie's thrown in the towel. But sometimes leadership comes as a 12-year-old mammy singer. On this 29th day of his 14-day self-quarantine, Canada's mammy singer has decided to return to work. Like the Count of Monte Cristo, he was making scratch marks on the wall of 24 Sussex Drive before he realised he couldn't count up to 14 anyway. Step forward, Justin Trudeau. If people want to wear a mask, uh, that is okay. It protects others more than it protects you because it prevents you from breathing or, or, or speaking uh, moistly on them. Oh, what a terrible image. Uh, but uh, it actually uh, is something that people can do uh, in certain situations. Got it. Speaking moistly. Looks like he'll need another 29 days in quarantine. Isn't speaking moistly the perfect summation of Justin's rhetorical style? As the peerless Canadian blogger Blazing Catfur put it, moistly he's an idiot. Beware of moistliness. In the words of a great Canadian song, Sometimes when we speak, the moistliness will leak. And I have to wear my mask and hide. At America's so-called news networks, they're ceasing to air the president's press conferences because he can stand there for two hours and demonstrate a grasp of somewhat technical issues. In the spirit of bipartisanship, I think Trump should offer to let Joe Biden take a two-hour presser in the White House every couple of days. Listen, man, it's a virus. The virus is what we need if we're ever going to kill the antibody and the body. Take 15 aspirin and call me after my nap or we'll never kill the cure the way I killed Osama bin Wuhan. You know the thing, man. More leadership, European Union style. The head of the European Research Council has resigned after a unanimous vote of no confidence. Professor Mauro Ferrari had tried but failed to set up a coronavirus research program. More EU failure. Its leaders have been unable to reach agreement on measures to ease the economic catastrophe in member states. Its two leading economies, France and Germany, have both recorded the worst economic contraction since the Second World War. They may not have flattened the curve, but they've flattened the economy. We now know that the experts know how to switch off the lights. They have no idea how to turn them back on. Not to worry... Some new defective test kits are on their way from Beijing. The ever-generous Chairman Xi has come up with a handy catchphrase for the media to latch onto. All these cures and equipment are the new health silk road from China to Europe. Thanks a bunch, you commie bastard. Let's build a wall across that new silk road and get the Chaikoms to pay for it. Old economic wisdom, when General Motors sneezes, America catches a cold because GM and America were in close proximity. In the new world the globalists have built for us, when Wuhan sneezes, America drops dead. Or at least that appears to be the idea, according to Chairman Xi. Have you had that $1,200 check yet? Do let me know when it comes. If they had no intention of putting them in the mail... As the expression goes, rechecks, they could just as easily have promised everyone a $1.2 million check. I've talked 
for the last few days about how this crisis exemplifies Trumpian themes that he ran on five years ago uh, when he came down that escalator. Open borders, stupid trade deals, the death of American manufacturing. Here's another one, the regulatory state. Regulations continue to obstruct efficient government and private sector response to an emergency. Trump has rolled back thousands of regulations. He needs to roll back many hundreds of thousands more. Hey, how are you liking them new police powers? Good evening, all. It's your Brit Wanker Copper of the Day. Actually, we're putting our Brit Wanker Copper on hold for today in honour of a rare Brit non-Wanker Copper coming up later. I've had a few queries about that intro music for our Brit Wanker Copper. Many in the UK and the Commonwealth uh, recognise it as the theme for the long-running Z cars. Uh, The title alone is why it never got a sale uh, to the US networks. But it doesn't sound uh, the way it used to on the telly show, people are saying. Well, my late BBC confrere Fritz Spiegel and his wife arranged the old Scottish folk tune Johnny Todd to create the Zedcast theme, but I always liked uh, the band leader Johnny Douglas's record of it, which in the second chorus or so kicks loose, as you can hear, and to me uh, evokes a room full of constables uh, off their faces on ecstasy on an almighty bender at the policeman's ball. And that's why I picked uh, that... <laughs> particular uh, snatch of Zed cars. Anyway, in lieu of a UK wanker copper, let's have one of Her Majesty's Montreal wanker coppers, although that's certainly not how they like to think of themselves. Her Majesty's, I mean. I think they're oddly proud of being wankers. It's Melissa LeBlanc's birthday this weekend. Madame LeBlanc lives in a Hunsic Park in Montreal and has not left her home for four weeks. Her groceries are left on her doorstep. It's not a great life. And so a few friends came round in their motor cars to serenade her from the street. Ten minutes later, officers from the SPVM, the Service de Police de la Ville de Montréal, knocked on Madame LeBlanc's door and informed her that she would be fined $1,546 for breaching social distance regulations. And furthermore, that if they had cause to come round again, she would face six months to a year in jail. Was it because those guys were singing in English? There's never been a better time for Perlen Quebecers to social distance from their Anglo chums, like, say, encouraging the Anglos to self-quarantine in Labrador. At any rate, a $1,546 fine for having Happy Birthday sung to you for 19 seconds. Bon anniversaire from our Montreal wanker coppers of the day. In these trying times, we could all use a little diversion. Watch Mark Stein's readings of work by poets from Robert Browning to Robert Service in Stein's Sunday poems. Whether it's Keats's Ode on a Grecian Urn, John McRae's In Flanders Fields, or James Montgomery's Greenland, 
Stein brings you the rhyme, rhythm, and reason behind classics and lesser-known delights. Stein's Sunday poems are available exclusively at www.steinonline.com for members of the Mark Stein Club. View the full catalog at www.steinonline.com poems. Oh, you know what this music means. Mark's Mailbox is on the air. Robert Fox, a first-week founding member of the Mark Stein Club from Iowa, writes, uh, in reference to the Ray Charles song, I'm Busted. If you were referring to the U.S. public debt, I'm Busted could be the anthem for the 21st century. What's another two or three or six or nine trillion when you're already 20-something trillion in debt and climbing? The Federal Reserve will need to start printing money just to cover the interest. I'm guessing by the time we have a Kung flu vaccine, interest service on the debt will be the single largest outlay for the US government, even outstripping defence spending. You know about that printing money? I'm not sure when you're talking about these kind of numbers whether they can actually print it that fast unless they start introducing some really large units of currency, like that trillion-dollar coin that Paul Krugman of the New York Times was proposing to introduce a decade or so back. On the other hand, I might be wrong about that. Maybe they'll just open up uh, multi-million dollar printing presses in every town across America. And now that all the mills and factories for everything else are over in China, uh, printing money will be the uh, only available work for America's workforce. Uh, This is a luxury, obviously, Robert, that's only available to the United States government because the dollar is the world's reserve uh, currency. And if the economic devastation is as bad as the numbers I mentioned earlier indicate, the big four of the European Union, by comparison, Germany, France, Italy, Spain, are in a whole heap of trouble. And you begin to understand why that finance minister from the uh, German state of Hesse was in such despair that he jumped under the Cologne-Frankfurt Express a couple of weeks ago, not because of the virus, but because of the economic ruin arising from responses to the virus. This is the first German government borrowing in years. And if you've read my book, After America, you'll know that, uh, whatever it was now, 12 years ago, I was struck by Angela Merkel's response as to why she wasn't going for an Obama-sized gazillion-dollar quote-unquote, stimulus. And Frau Merkel replied that Germany couldn't do that because of its deathbed bio, uh, deathbed demography, i.e. there aren't enough grandkids to pay it off. And that hasn't changed, no matter how many fake teenage refugees Mutti Merkel admits. It's true for Italy and Spain too. So the question is whether America's unique privilege of being able to have uh, fortnightly $20 trillion stimuli for the next 18 months or however long dear old Dr. Fauci wants us walled up for, whether that uh, unique privilege will weaken or strengthen the long-term situation. You mentioned the interest service on the debt outstripping the military budget. In After America, I point out that a lot of that debt interest goes to China and to other bad actors. Um, enabling uh, Beijing to double, triple its own defense spending so that if they ever do make a move on Taiwan and we go to war over it, we'd be funding both sides of the conflict. Budget-wise, it would uh, be a U.S. civil war 
uh, relocated to the South China Sea. But put that aside, put that aside, um, and think back to uh, Suez, 1956, uh, when uh, the um, uh, uh, British and the French and the Israelis, uh, after the nationalization of the Suez Canal by NASA, uh, decided to send troops to take it back. And America decided to yank the rug out uh, from under the Brits, the French, and the Israelis. And, uh, and, apply, and, and as part of that strategy, decided to destroy the pound. Just, and that was stunning to the British because they realized that the special relationship didn't mean on one side of the ocean quite what they thought it meant on the other. Well, now we have the world's most important special relationship, Chimerica, as Niall Ferguson ludicrously called it, uh, between China and America. And maybe that doesn't mean the same on one side of the ocean as it does on the other. Let's say you wanted to yank the rug out from under the US dollar. Wouldn't now be a good time to set that in motion? Uh, you need some other people to help you out, but there's a lot of people out there, the Russians, the Saudis. There's people out there who would be interested in destroying the dollar as the reserve currency and uh, creating a new reserve currency that would be more beneficial to them. China thinks ahead. We're reactive. Uh, I see Congress is planning investigations and hearings into the Wu flu because uh, we're rearview mirror kind of guys in our political culture, and a China investigation, that's, that's great for uh, Washingtonians because it will surely run longer than the Russia investigation. But on the big stuff, if you were thinking about the next long-term move that China might make, wouldn't destroying the dollar as the global currency be the one that some guys in Beijing are certainly working on right now? China thinks ahead. Can we? Mark Stein's last call. While I was sitting in for Rush the other day, I was thinking this thing's kind of like Jaws. Some of us are like uh, the mayor of that town, and thinking, shut down the beach, are you crazy? And others are like the Richard Dreyfus character and saying, uh, these teeth marks are way bigger than a regular shark. Everyone's going to die. And the rest of us are trying to do a chief Brody and steer a middle course. But in the end, a lot of it's to do with your allotted role in the narrative. For instance, if you happen to be the mother of a young boy eaten by the shark, Chief Brody? Yes? I just found out that a girl got killed here last week. And you knew it. You knew there was a shark out there. You knew it was dangerous. But you let people go swimming anyway. You knew all those things. But still, my boy is dead now. 
and there's nothing you can do about it. My boy is dead. I wanted you to know that. Lee Fierro as the grieving Mrs. Kintner in Jaws in the famous face-slapping scene with Roy Scheider. Steven Spielberg did not want a star-studded cast for Jaws, uh, despite uh, pressure from the studio, because he thought, for example, that Charlton Heston, who wanted to play the police chief, would give it a glamour and grandeur that would undermine the sense of a... uh, normal small town under attack. He filmed it in Martha's Vineyard, and many in the cast were locals, like Lee Fierro, who was the artistic director of the Island Theatre Workshop. And after she'd hit the big screen in Jaws, she went right back to being artistic director of the Island Theatre Workshop, where she stayed for another 42 years. Uh, beloved by hundreds and hundreds of actors who pass through that small Martha's Vineyard Island Theatre. Dead of the coronavirus at the age of 91, Lee Fierro, as with her kid in the movie, they waited too long to close the beach. Mihailo Knezevic was born near Valjevo in western Serbia and was tonsured as an Eastern Orthodox monk, scalped and renamed after a great Serbian king of the early 14th century, Stefan Milutin. Thereafter, Milutin Knezevic led a most peripatetic life as graduate of the Theological Faculty of St. Sava in Libertyville, Illinois, secretary of the Serbian Orthodox Diocese of Canada, a parish priest in Niagara Falls, bishop of Australia and New Zealand, and finally home to Valjevo as bishop in 2006. Since we are pretty much unchurched this Easter, here is Bishop Knesevic six Easter's ago, 2014, preaching against the heresy of the Roman Pope. Quote, We are not going to forget Rome's heresy, Rome's Pope, who proclaimed the greatest heresy in this world when he said that he is the vicar of God's Son. How so, O you Pope of Rome? Bishop Militin Knesevic, quote, The Pope gave birth to Martin Luther 
And Martin Luther gave birth to thousands of sects that are sweeping through the world, who often drink human blood, who kill children to drink human blood. Terrible sects that are the fruits of Rome's Pope. I'm no uh, theologian, but it sounds to me like there are bigger differences between Rome and the Serbian Orthodox Church than between Rome and my dear old Anglican Communion. Uh, drinking human blood is not a good idea right now, but then members of the Serbian Orthodox Church uh, receive communion through a single spoon dipped and re-dipped in wine for all congregants, a practice that continued until a fortnight ago. Bishop Knesevich uh, shared the same spoon as everybody else. Then he fell sick was taken to hospital in Belgrade and became the first Eastern Orthodox bishop to fall victim to the Chinese coronavirus. Dead of COVID-19 at the age of 71, Militan Knesevich. Is there anybody who watches La Dolce Vita for the shoes? I mean, Anita Ekberg, sure. Marcello Mastroianni. Anu Kamei, Nino Rota's music. But who pays attention to the shoes? Buonasera, Madalena. Come sta? Sola? Vuole ballare? No. Beviamo una vodka? No, mi va tutto storto stasera. Vado via. L'accompagno. Well, Federico Fellini did, and he loved the footwear of a young man called Sergio Rossi, the son of a shoemaker from San Mauro Pascoli. Sergio was 25, and Fellini decided that Anita Ekberg would wear his shoes in La Dolce Vita. And people did notice, and Sergio Rossi became a world-famous shoe designer and a global luxury brand. When the coronavirus hit northern Italy, Signor Rossi gave 100,000 euros to the Luigi Sacco Hospital in Milan. Not all his wealth could save him. He died about 10 miles from where he was born, in the part of Italy he loved best, but also, alas, the most afflicted by the Wuhan scourge. Dead of the China coronavirus at the age of 84, Sergio Rossi. I've mentioned before, I think in uh, Mark Stein's Passing Parade, that I used to date a nurse who worked at the Royal London Hospital, and at the end of her shift we'd uh, go for a drink across the road at the local pub, The Blind Beggar, an East End landmark famed for one night in the 60s when Ronnie Cray, one half of the notorious Cray twins, strolled in and pulled a gun on his gangland rival, George Cornell. Well, well, well. Mr. Cray. 
You haven't got the bottle. <laughs> Bet Ron. When it came to Ronnie's bottle, Ronnie shot him between the eyes. The jukebox was playing the Walker Brothers' number one hit, The Sun Ain't Gonna Shine Anymore, and is said to have got stuck on the title phrase over and over. The sun ain't gonna shine for him anymore, said Ronnie. We eventually traced most of the witnesses there, but uh, none of them would, would give evidence that they'd seen Ronnie Cray. They were immovable because there was always this wall of silence. First of all, this natural wall of silence that people in the East End don't talk to the coppers. And the second thing was that this wall of fear. It was almost common knowledge that Ronnie Cray had shot George Cornell in The Blind Beggars. Uh, as a matter of fact, when uh, later I started to investigate it, people in the East End said to me that the Crays did everything but take the front page of the Times to advertise the fact. That's Detective Chief Superintendent Leonard Reed of the Metropolitan Police, better known as Nipper Reed of the Yard, back in the days before the Met became woke wankers. In the East End in those days, nobody grasped to the peelers. So no matter how insanely pointless and arbitrary their violence got, the Cray twins, uh, Reggie was the straight one, Ronnie was the gay one, both of them were psychopathic, uh, the Cray twins were untouchable. Even when you found a witness, a week or two later, they had a revelation from the Lord. His, his story to me was that, that uh, he had been walking around London and suddenly he'd had a revelation from God that uh, he shouldn't tell this story, that it was a story that was false. And that suddenly, when he came to his senses, he realised that he was in Valence Road, and he walked into a 178, which was the home of the craze then, and there demanded to see a priest, and so one was brought to him, and then he confessed that the story that he'd given before was false, and that he now wanted to renege on that and give the true evidence. The most methodical of coppers, Nipper Reed patiently worked away and eventually turned the barmaid at the blind beggar that night. Given a new identity, the barmaid was moved out of London to a secret address in Essex. Eventually, she was uh, persuaded by the, the, the nature of the support that she had that she could tell the truth. And in fact, later on in court, she very dramatically pointed to Ronnie Gray and said, that is the man. It was the longest and most expensive trial in English courtroom history. The twins were sent down for 30 years, which, given their dominance over East End life, was so extraordinary that Reggie and Ronnie's family, listening to the verdict on the radio back home, assumed it must have been a mistake. Aunt Violet, myself and Mum, was in the kitchen and we were listening to the wireless. And when it came on that um, they'd got 30 years, you know, we was, we was dumbstruck, really. We couldn't believe it, like... And Aunt Violet looked at Mother and she said, oh, I think they've made a mistake. Nipper Reed outlived Reggie and Ronnie Cray and the other East End criminals he put behind bars and in later life was inclined to see them as a phenomenon of the age. I feel they were a part of the 60s like the minicar and, and Twiggy and other things. You know, they, they were a part of it. As was Leonard Nipper Reed, immortalised by Monty Python, as Harry Snapper Organs, 
man who hunted down the Piranha Brothers. It was in February, though, that Dinsdale made a big mistake. In a fit of pique, he napalmed Cheltenham. Even the police began to sit up and take notice. The Piranhas realised they'd gone too far and that the hunt was on. They went into hiding. I decided on a subtle approach, viz some form of disguise, as the old helmet and boots were a bit of a giveaway. Dead of the coronavirus one week after his 95th birthday. Detective Chief Superintendent Nipper Reed. I wonder what would happen if a Wuhan bat were to bite a shark, a sequel I hope never to see. One more. To return to where we came in, singer John Prine, 73 years old. He is one of the few songwriters to have written about his own death and one of the even fewer to make musical provision for the disposal of his remains. This is an old song that your grandpa might have taught you. It's a, it's a suggestion of what to do with your body parts. After you leave here. Just a suggestion. My doctor told me, don't you go leaving any of your parts to anybody, so you're not doing anybody any, any good. Woke up this morning, put on my slippers. I walked in the kitchen and died. And oh, what a feeling when my soul went through the ceiling And on up into heaven I did ride When I got there they did say, John, it happened this way You slipped upon the floor and hit your head And all the angels say, just before you passed away That these were the very last words that you said Please don't bury me down in the cold, cold ground No, I'd rather have them cut me up and pass me all around Throw my brain in a hurricane The blind can have my eyes and the deaf can take Both of my ears if they don't mind the size Get my stomach to Milwaukee if they run out of beer Put my socks in a cedar box just to get them out of here A Venus to Milo can have my arms Look out, I got your nose Sell my heart to the junk man and give my love to Rose But please don't bury me down in the cold, cold ground I'd rather have them cut me up and pass me all around Throw my brain in a hurricane The blind could have my eyes And the deaf could take Both of my ears if they don't mind the size Oh man I give my feet to the footloose Careless, fancy free 
and get my knees to the needy. Don't pull that stuff on me. Hand me down my walking cane. It's a sin to tell a lie. Send my mouth way down south and kiss my ass goodbye. But please don't bury me down in the cocoa ground. I'd rather have them cut me up and pass me all around. Throw my brain in a hurricane. The blind have my eyes and the deaf to take both of my ears if they don't mind the side. Midweek Song of the Week extra for me to you, courtesy of John Prine. Please don't bury me down in that cold, cold ground. I'd rather have them cut me up and pass me all around. But they cannot give your eyes to the blind and your arms to the Venus de Milo, not when you die of COVID-19. I'll be back this evening, North American Eastern Time, for the latest episode of our current Tale for Our Time, Daniel Defoe's Journal of the Plague Year, Advice for 2020 from 1665. To our Jewish listeners around the world, happy Passover. The English word comes from the plagues of Egypt, the death of the firstborn and all that, when the Spirit of the Lord afflicting those plagues nevertheless passed over certain homes. May the new plague pass over yours. Stay safe, stay free. Join us next time for another edition of The Mark Stein Show. The Mark Stein Show is a production of Mark Stein Enterprises and Oak Hill Media. All rights reserved.